Oh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a good day. Right as I plan to do a segment on GB News. GB News is, get this, in the news. And in the words, public enemies, Chuck D. Be the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in circumstances. I loved it. Um, I was. I had a segment ready um, related to GB news and you know just misinformation in general. And as I record, Lawrence Fox and Dan Wooten get suspended, which is funny because you know. I don't know why it took some on-air misogyny uh, to to have them suspended when, you know, when uh, Byline Times have done a full-on expose on Dan Wooten over the past uh, month or so. But here we are. They're suspended. Happy days. And, uh, yeah, one step closer to GB News becoming obsolete because I just, you know, the question I'm going to ask now and during that particular segment uh, when we do GB News is... um, why do they still exist? <laughs> How are they not shut down yet? Uh, but anyway, uh, I just uh, I got delivered today um, something I bought a few weeks ago. Um, as a, you know, just one of those um, you know clip-on mics. You know that people use on the go. You see those in you know all them TikTok videos where they put the mic really close to their mouths and it's just sound like that and it's horrible and it's just not fun to listen to. Um, I didn't. I don't know if they use the same freaking mic that I bought, um, but I won't be surprised because uh, it's ours. Um, so yeah, just um, spend, you know, just like half an hour over uh, today, just um, testing it, and it sucks. So gonna be returning that shit straight back as soon as possible and get my refund because <laughs> that mic is ass is cheeks. Booty cheeks. It's crazy how crap it is. Anyway, um, I wanted to buy one of those things, you know, just um, to make interviews easier if I ever... Um, I do have a couple that I want to do over the next, um, you know, by the end of the year, hopefully, um, before December ends, uh, before December begins, actually. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to get some, you know, trying to you know invest in some gear on that front, you know what I mean? But... Apparently you can't cut corners with that. Um, you need to get some, you know, proper verifier, proper good stuff. And, uh, you know, I got it for like, I think, you know, 20, 30 quid. And, uh, yeah, it's not it. It's not, it's not it, Chief. So, uh, yeah, going to have to back to plan B, back to plan A on that one. Or back to, or back to the drawing board on that one is what I should say. Uh, but anyway, what do we have? We have music, TV. wonder what that one is. Uh, photography and culture um, subjects for this episode. Formats before we begin: email, socials. Well, soon to not be socials. Um, you know, keeping that uh, keeping that Twitter packed. Um, so far, I'm I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I think I'm ready to go. Uh, we shall see how it goes uh, in the next few months, and uh, if it improves, you never know. I might just have a change of heart for some reason. I fucking hope I don't. Um, but yeah, just um. You know, trying to trying to make plans for that as well because you know I do use Twitter 
for some things, but, you know, obviously those are going to have to change at some point, somehow. Uh, but anyway, uh, what was it? Socials, writing, all that in full show notes, as well as the music and podcast under the 5 EPN. And with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where a police officer is to be charged with murder of Chris Cabba, and as an amazing addition, addendum to that story, um, armed police in the Met are putting their guns down in protest, and which is just absolutely fucking hilarious to me, and a crazy reactionary uh, throwing your toys out the pram attitude. Um, and uh, the government is basically supporting that, um, which is just grim state of affairs. Uh, Rupert Murdoch steps down as chair of Fox and News Corp. Yeah, well, plenty of force can be said about that. Uh, Pro-EU protesters uh, rally in London at the same time as um, XL bully protesters, of which um, got shut down because of, get this, a dog attack, which is outstanding. Um, And this has come from a guy who, you know, has had a dog... I've had two dogs um, over the course of, you know, 15 years, more than that, maybe. Like, yeah, just, you know, a while, over 15 years, definitely. Um, So, you know, I'm pro-dog, but it's just the way they're acting is just, yeah, it's just silly. Uh, WGA writer strike ends after 148 days, and I have a ton of thoughts towards that. But again, in a week where, keeping it short... And lastly, France end military presence in Niger and pull ambassador from country after coup. Happy days. So let's begin with this article piece music related music segment on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I've always been kind of confused about the point of, of the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I've, I've never really understood its nece- necess- uh, necessity in. American music history, I guess, in terms of just notifying, I don't know, it just seems like it's a world where, um, what do you want to call it, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a pl- it seems like a place where, uh, what do you want to call it, where they're, they're, they're into certain things, but not everything, and it's a bit confusing why it even exists. You know what I mean? It's just I don't really get why why they're there at this point in time. It's a, it's a hodgepodge of of uh, of uh, musicians that are rated and you know as artists should be celebrated. Yeah, they're it's pretty solid. That you know most of the artists that are covered and are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, deserve to be there somewhat. Um, but again. Why have them when they're when the whole thing is just a bit odd? So let's just jump right into this. So this is uh, by Fergal Kinney. It's called "It's Time to Scrap the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame." It's five new statements. So let's jump right in. It took just forty-eight hours for an interview in the New York Times with American media entrepreneur Jan Wenner to resign his removal from the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation. Prestigious award, prestigious award ceremony 
and a museum that he co-founded. The reckoning, though, was half a century in the making. Promoting his book, The Masters, Conversations with Dylan, Lennon, Jagger, Townsend, Ta- yeah, Towns- Townshend, I don't know if I spelled wrong, Garcia, Bono, and Springsteen, when her 77 was asked why he had not interviewed any women or black musicians, he responded by entirely dismissing their contribution to the history of popular music. Popular music. Quote, it's not that they're inarticulate, although go have a deep conversation with Grace Slick or Janis Joplin, said Wenner, adding that Joni Mitchell, Mitchell was, quote, not a philosopher of rock and roll, unquote. And as Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield, quote, just didn't articulate at that level, unquote. On 18th September, when I apologised for the comments through his publisher, which he conceded had, quote, diminished the contributions, genius and impact, unquote, of these lies. No shit, you don't say, brother. Uh, but when his comments uh, contradict a little about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he was simply explicitly stating the ideology that established the institution. His very premise is built on the prejudices he es- expressed. It's time to scrap this self-congratulatory congratulatory, there you go, country club, they can only ever entrench rather than resolve problems of recognition. Late 20th century idea of the rock star was nurtured in the culture that Jan Wenner helped to create. I don't really care if I'm saying his name right, uh, wrong or right. Rolling Stone magazine, which Wenner co-founded in San Francisco in 1967, moulded the rock star identity through closely tendered personal relationships, never revealed to readers with those same figures. Uh, Mick Jagger was both business partner and sailing buddy. Bruce Springsteen was a reliable ally. John Landau, Springsteen's manager, was reportedly the only dissenting vote during this week's emergency Hall of Fame board meeting. Wenner made his reputation uh, with an explosive 1970 interview with John Lennon, republished as part of the Masters, that was later revealed to have been subject to extensive copy approval and editing by the Beatle himself. When the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was created in 1983, the brainchild of Ahmet Artigan, chairman of Atlantic Records, who in 2017 was posthumously accused of sexual assault by a former employee. Wenner was brought in as a co-founder. It became Wenner would both. It became Wenner would boast his baby. It was during the 1990s and the Rock and the Rock that the Rock Hall began to accrue the prestige it carries today. With the, with the opening of its 150,000 square foot museum site in Cleveland, Ohio, from which induction ceremonies would be broadcast on HBO, in a climate where rock fans were suddenly holding highest office in the UK and US. Rock Hall inductees were and still are decided on behind closed doors in a shadowy two-stage process. An elite panel of 30 music critics, entertainment lawyers and label executives selected a list of 15 names which is narrowed down to five by a larger body of 500 people. Heavy with former winners. Artists qualify for the Rock Roll, uh, rock Hall for 25 years after their first recording. This has resulted in a process that fails to recognise root, Rock's roots. No shit. Instead, artists who are overwhelmingly more likely to have suffered abuse, exploitation and structural disadvantage in the early phases of their career are made to compete against huge stars for recognition. Uh, in a late career extension of those disadvantages. This continuity can be often punishingly literal. Ronnie Spector was kept from recognition by her abusive husband, abusive former husband Phil Spector, who in the 1990s lobbied the nominating committee against inducting the Ronettes. 
it worked, and only after the producer was charged with the murder, uh, excuse me, in 2003 of Lana Clarkson, did the board see fit to recognise the renowned girl group. <laughs> I love that. So, so the dude who was former husband of you know one of the you know key members of the of the Renettes, and he he himself was a key cog in the Renettes um, as their producer for you know their hits and lobbied against them and then got charged with murder and then they were like oh okay let's do it now so the the revisionism is very hilarious well and the lack of context i'm sure for when they get for when they were inducted it's like you know they're not gonna say we didn't do uh we didn't put them in because uh, you know ronnie specter was boycotting them but you know now that he's charged for murder, we're doing it now. Just interesting timing, right? You know what I mean? So, well-known female lies have accused the Rock Hall Institution of sexism and racism. Why are women so marginalised by the Rock Hall? Asked Courtney Love in this uh, this year in The Guardian. But for all of Love's critiques and the institution, that just 8.48% of the inductees are women, only 9 of the 31 board members are women, that when himself had been inducted long ago, when while Kate Bush only made it in this year on her fourth nomination, she still argued in favour of the Rock Hall, which she described as a king-making force in the global music industry and providing a bulwark against erasure. What's a bulwark? B-U-L-W-A-R-K. Bulwark? Never heard of it. Anyway, but in acting as kingmaker, uh, the Rock Hall sets up a rigged system. So I have a big just gripe, uh, just f- philosophical gripe about Corny Love right there, but we'll put a pin in that. As Rockhall attempts to create a canon, uh, the actual canon changes. One artist who had become an important part of the canon now is Arthur Russell, the American cellist and songwriter who died of AIDS-related illness in 1992. Though lesser known in his lifetime, Russell exerts an outsized influence on today's rock, pop and indie performers. Thanks to an array of unpredictable contemporary factors, easier home recording, independent reissue labels, more visibly queer artists in pop, increasingly porous borders between the club and the concert hall. These are the kind of things which shape canons. Though we might like to think we can dictate how history will remember us, we cannot. Books fall into backlists, buildings come down, and there are no guards against irrelevancy. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the tragic expression of a desire for immortality that befalls all empires at their height. And in the early 1980s, conservative rock was an empire at its height. Its promise of permanent veneration to its inductees is a hollow one. Its futility is evident in how it plays catch-up with decades-old innovations, begrudgingly acknowledging metal with 2009 induction of Metallica, or giving the towering influence of Kraftwerk a thumbs up only two years ago. What might take his place? The British writer Andrew Hickey's A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs podcast which has been celebrated by the New Yorker as, quote, a landmark in the story of popular music, but also of podcasting, unquote, points to how a new generation is discussing, engaging with, and reinventing the canon. Unlike the 1990s obsession with ranking and lionization, Hickey advocates a complicated history that pronounces very few firsts and certainly no bests. If the Rock Hall has uh, had as much creativity and ingenuity as it applauds itself for, it will transform its mission and use its ample resources and vast archives to commemorate a 20th century art form with the thoroughness it deserves. As it stands, it only limits our understanding of rock. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tried a sculpt history. Instead, 
It should be co-signed, consigned to it. Right, so all of that aside and, you know, solid um, solid words on all of that. The attitude that people like Courtney Love have where they critique, and, you know, I've talked about this in several layers of uh, conversation when it comes to um, arts, um, hip-hop in particular. Um, when I criticise hip-hop, I do it from a place of love. And, you know, Courtney Love in some ways is doing the same thing. But... When I'm talking about hip-hop, I'm talking about it from a very um, from a very idealistic perspective. Um, I'm talking about hip-hop in the fashion of its overall essence. I believe hip-hop can be saved from, you know, the misogyny, the gripped, the, the, the tentacles of capitalism that is all over hip-hop and obviously the music industry as general in a, as a whole but you know sticking to hip-hop right um and all the ills hip-hop has and all its quote-unquote heroes hold where a majority of them now are black capitalists at this point and you know that's just not what i feel hip-hop is and should not be about well i see its legends and some of its legends and uh um and uh you know again people that pe- people that are constantly hailed as the greats of this art form, um, I don't believe they are, and I feel they, you know, have bastardized what hip hop was supposed to be. Um, but when Corny Love talks about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, it's an institution. It's one institution. There were no one institution, I believe, uh, should be, you know, the be all and end all for one thing, especially for something as big as. Whatever the fuck rock and roll is at this point, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like the definition of rock and roll is a lot different from when it began, right? By black people, right? Is is it's long. It's the, the the definition has long changed. So to make an institution where it's called, literally called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I don't know what that means. Um, and for her to defend something that clearly just doesn't have the um, doesn't have the energy or the interest to actually um, cover an art form uh, thoroughly, then what's the point of it? Like, the same with like the BET Hip Hop Awards. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what the BET Hip Hop Awards says um, as an institution, right? If they say Lyricist of the Year is Drake or whatever, for, or, or they nominate Jack Harlow for Lyricist of the Year, I'm just like, okay, well, it's the BET Awards. It's just some. It, they might be black people, they might not be, who knows, who cares. It's one institution. The Rock and Hall of Fame is a, it's just an institution. The Grammy Awards is just an institution. I don't care about what these institutions say. Hip-hop, obviously, and when I criticise hip-hop, is an overall thing, right? It's an overall entity that I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about... We're not talking about rock and roll as, a, as an art form. We're not talking about rock and roll as an essence here. We're talking about Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is just one singular institution and a garbage one at that so again why is the rock and roll hall of fame even worth anything and why is the likes of courtney love criticizing it but also defending it as like a king maker like, fuck off no <laughs> no people that listen to music and appreciate the music and the historians of it and the people that love it should be the people that carry on its legacy and you know if they choose to document it then all the better you know what I mean? If people were passionate enough to document, that's great. Um, but 
to give one institution just carte blanche on what they consider rock and roll or people that should be venerated or quote unquote immortalized it's quite simply bullshit Let's get into this GB News juice. Um, not the Damwilton Lawrence Fox shit, but just them in general. Um, this is an article from the 22nd of September. Um, so this is by Max Colbert and Josiah Mortimer uh, via Bionic Times. It's called Inside GB News' Misinformation Factory. Can't wait. Let's jump right in. GB News has just been found to have breached impartiality rules by regular Ofcom for the third time since its launch in 2021. Only the third? Really? Surprising the daily occurrence. Uh, the decision centres around an episode of Saturday Morning with Esther and Phil. The discussion programme, hosted by Conservative MP husband and wife duo Esther McVeigh and Philip Davies. In something resembling a broadcast from a post-coup state, the show featured a pre-recorded interview between the pair and their own party's Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, uh, talking about the government's economic policy ahead of the spring budget. The program received 45 complaints, and the investigation found that during discussions, quote, no real attention was given anywhere in the program to the viewpoints of politicians, political parties, organisations, or individuals that either, for example, criticise, opposed, or put forward any... Uh, forward policy alternatives to the viewpoints given by the three conservative politicians, unquote. Esther and Phil are the only conservative politicians controversy hosting shows on the channels to have come under fire, with three of the four most recent investigations concerning sitting MPs. Given multiple failures to adhere to basic regulatory standards on GB News, the revolving door between the channel and politicians raises serious questions about the appropriateness of public officials continuing to accept lucrative positions with the broadcaster. Conservative MPs have been paid nearly 350k for appearances on GB News since the start of 2023. Byland Times analysis shows it really does pay to be a prick, doesn't it? it? I can't believe just the amount of pricks that just get money to talk shit, to talk utter shit. It's actually crazy to me. Like, I don't care if this show makes money. Never cared. But I feel like I say a lot more substantive things than them. And I don't get paid 350 fucking K. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I just... Wow, it's crazy. Anyway, GB News also acts as an unofficial home for the small but vocal number of conservatives on the further right of the party. Who've been increasingly playing the anti-immigration and cultural-oriented audiences of parties like Reform and Reclaim. Senior members of those parties feature prominently on GB News' output. The channel routinely broadcasts conspiratorial talking points, sectors, an unofficial platform for fringe parties and projects on the right, coupled with the reputational harm of appearing on a broadcaster so frequently found to have fallen foul of regulators. How soon is too soon to ask, quote, to ask, when will conservative politicians end their love affair with GB News? Never. They get paid for it. What do you mean? While the most, uh, while the four most recent Ofcom investigations cover serious potential breaches over a short space of time, they only touch upon a fraction of GB News's output. There are currently six further active investigations into the channel, including two further episodes of Esther and Phil, two episodes of Jacob Rees-Mogg's State of the Nation, 
and investigations into reclaim leader Lawrence Fox's show, guest presented by the party's former deputy, deputy leader Martin Dobney, and an episode of The Live Desk. Four of these investigations include possible breaches of rules limiting politicians acting as presenters, and three cover potential breaches of impartiality. Potential breaches. Potential breaches. <laughs> it's just, I swear, it must be a daily occurrence, surely, if, like, if, you know, is it, how, how comes someone off comments and just watching, like, just, just get, like, you know, 24 of them, 24 people f- from Ofcom, just to watch an hour each, and, you know, just call, call on, investigate what you, inve- just see what you see, innit? Find out what you see. Um, just saying, just, Sounds worth it to me, anyway. You know, because GB News is garbage. Anyway, since the channel was established in June 2021, three further investigations have concluded that GB News and on one to the point GB News Radio. There's a radio. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know they had a radio. How fallen short of expected standards. I can't imagine what's said on the radio. Oh my gosh, it must be even worse. Uh, these follow on from the broadcaster being found a breach of Ofcom regulations for a segment on Mark Stein's show featuring anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist Naomi Wolf. During the broadcast, Wolf repeatedly made unopposed claims that the COVID-19 vaccine rollout amounted to mass murder, as well as comparing it to doctors in pre-Nazi Germany. Oh my gosh! Wow. Um, I literally had my uh, flu and uh, third COVID vaccine uh, the other day because. I was just in the neighbourhood and uh, got a text about a flu vaccination, uh, which I do get every year, uh, just because. And uh, they offered the COVID one. And I was like, yeah, why not? Fuck it. So got one in each arm and uh, my left arm's been hurting since. Anyway, uh, this was the second time the channel was found by, by a regulator uh, to have pushed misleading COVID conspiracies after another episode of Stein Show was found to have present, uh, quote, presented a materially misleading interpretation of official data without sufficient challenge or counterweight, risking harm to viewers. Stein has since left the channel. And 3GB News uh, shows were recently collectively hit with over 400 complaints in a single week at the end of August this year, hosted by Nigel Farage, Dan Wilson and Mark Dolan. In discussion on this show covering gang violence at the Kabaddi tournament in Derby, Farage said without evidence that the finger of blame lay with people linked to the Khalistan separatist movement, which strives to create a homeland for Sikhs. The Sikh Federation UK strongly criticised the segment, arguing that Farage's programme, quote, was inaccurate and biased, mis- mis- misrepresented uh, facts, uh, was offensive, misleading, discriminatory, spread hate, and was unfair, unquote. Senior officer for the Sikh Press Association said, GB News, peace may be the worst example of anti-Sikh reporting from a UK news org I have uh, seen in nearly nine years of covering Sikhs in UK media. Nigel Frand was contacted for comment. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'll hit back. I'm sure you'll get back to GB uh, uh, Byland Times. Really sure. Um, the same week as the Kabaddi controversy, uh, Mark Dolan's show was hit with 74 complaints when presenter uh, Patrick Christie's joked with... Uh, Christie's is his name, by the way. No apostrophe yes on that. Christie's uh, joked with a guest that, quote... If you had one fake gun and one fake bullet and you lined up Harry and James Corden, I don't know which one you'd go for. Fake gun and fake bullet. It's like a toy gun? What, what do you mean? In January, GB News Express it was going to try and cut costs amid rows with Ofcom with Chairman, Chairman Alan McCormick aiming to make the channel more disciplined. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> disciplined GB News. 
since then, he has been hit with over a thousand further complaints of Ofcom, uh, to Ofcom concerning eight separate broadcasts. By that time, analysis of Ofcom weekly complaint review reveals. I was surprised to read more, really. Like, still, they keep raising numbers and giving numbers. I'm just like, it should be more. The two most commonly complained about were Tonight with Dan Whitten and Neil Oliver Live. Oliver left his position at the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Imagine leaving an actual position. Outstanding. With the immediate effect on 6th September after it became apparent that, quote, his current views on various matters widely aired on television put him at odds with scientific and broader academic learning within the society. No shit. Uh, spokesperson said Oliver is frequently criticised for mainstreaming climate denialism and vaccine scepticism, both on GB News and social media. Two days after his departure from the RSC, he tweeted, "Anyone fancy a revolution? I could just go for a revolution right now." Later, adding, "I meant what I said." Ooh, saucy, cheeky bargarini, fucking hell. Uh, how long have we got? All right, so this is uh, going a little long, so I'm gonna have to skip a bit, um, but. I don't know, man. I, I feel like that. I feel like I'm just gonna give examples. <laughs> I'm just um, skim reading the rest of it, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of shit from here in analysis of their uh, speech. Here we go. Here's one. Presenters of the show um, have, on several occasions, made other nods to far right tropes more commonly found on Telegram and 4chan, including the racist great, Repla- great replacement theory uh, that mass migration is replacing British culture and anti-Semitic conspiracies surrounding the World Economic Forum, George Soros, and a globalist elite controlling media narratives. Uh, Dan Whitten uses show after byline Times investigation into him uh, was published to condemn a supposed smear campaign by dark forces. Fucking love it. Um, but yeah, it's just... Uh, oh, here's another one relating to Russell Brand. Turner has come... Uh, Turner, Turner, Turner... Trying to find the name. Beverly Turner. There you go. Beverly Turner has come under fire again uh, this week for defending Russell Brand against reporting into his history of alleged sexual assault, sexual assault emotional abuse, and rape, uh, which she did without watching the Channel 4 Dispatches investigation by her own admission on air. Why would you admit that? Why would you say you haven't watched the, <laughs> the <laughs> one of the key texts? <laughs> Oh, for the subject at hand. Oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing. So yeah, um, I I, I don't know. I just I, I remember I've, I've covered GB News a couple of times over this year, definitely once, maybe another time. But you know, I don't try and do it too often. But you know, I feel like there needs to just be a just a just a just a finger on the pulse. So just going asking. The, Oh wow, this still exists. Why does this still exist? And here is some, here is some evidence of why it shouldn't exist anymore. I do, I do wonder: is there a cut off to amount of violations? Because I feel like they're not going to lose money in time soon, since they're paying three hundred fifty k to pe- for people to be on it. So money ain't an issue. So is there a legal precedent to just shut this fucker down? Because I feel like. There needs to come a time where, yeah, this this place is dog shit. Shut it down. Like, bro, if I commit a crime and you know, <laughs> and I get done for it, that's affecting my whole life for the for maybe the rest of my life. These are just spouting shit 
and they just continue to get paid. I don't know. But anyway, let's hop on to uh, photography. And this is a piece about photojournalism, specifically about James Natchtwe, um, literally on the BBC News Asia, um, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, by Jonathan Head, who is a Southeast Asia correspondent. Um, the last of the great photojournalists, um, which sounds depressing, actually, because I feel like photojournalism is really an important um, piece of, um, you know, of, of our lives, um, uh, of having that professional documentation visually and also in terms of text but um but i don't know the last of i didn't realize there was a there was a there, the numbers were dwindling i didn't realize that was happening um you know i love the works of you know gordon parks and martha cooper and henry chalfont um uh ernie Panicioli, which in some ways a lot of it is photojournalism but just in a different way obviously you know um gordon parks covered american life you know, very in very specific ways over the years uh, of his career, and uh, you know, I've, I consider the likes of Martha Cooper and them, uh, you know, quote unquote hip hop photographers. You know, they're in some ways photojournalists in in a lot of ways. So uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a definition, uh, official definition, I haven't checked. But anyway, let's jump right into this and see what's say. The woman has just discovered the bodies of her husband and brother in her garden in Bucha. Um, a suburb of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. The bodies are dusted with frost. Lays one hand on her brother. Uh, she lays one hand on her brother while the fingers of her other hand touch her mouth. There are two more humans' hands almost perfectly arranged in the frame of someone whose face cannot be seen, one resting on the head of a dog, the other playing nervously with her blonde hair. It presents an unexpectedly peaceful moment, arranged with the near-perfect balance of a classical painting. Except it's not. Is a photo from the aftermath of the massacre of civilians in Butcher, taken by the renowned photojournalist James Natch Twee. Hands and eyes, I'm concentrating always on hands and eyes and the detail of the dog. You're actually seeing, seeing to see the sympathy in the face of the dog, uh, says Mr. Natch Twee, who has brought his retrospective exhibition memoria to Bangkok, uh, the only place is being shown in Asia. The collection has 126 photographs from some of the worst conflicts and disasters of our times, from Central America in the 1980s to the ongoing war in Ukraine. A very private, softly spoken man who prefers to let his images speak for themselves. Mr. Natch Twee agreed to be interviewed in Bangkok about his approach to photojournalism, about the state of the profession in the, digi- excuse me, in the digital age. Now 75 years old, Mr. Natch Twee uh, just missed being part of the Vietnam War generation of photojournalists when the profession reached the peak of its influence. The the searing images uh, from that conflict, from photographers like Philip Jones Griffiths, Don McCullen and Tim Page, helped swing public opinion against involvement in the conflict and force the US withdrawal from it. But Mr. Natchtwee is arguably the greatest of their generation that followed. Five times winner of the Robert Kappa Gold Medal for courageous overseas photographic reporting, his images are known for both their brutal immediacy in their stunning composition and lighting, rendering his subjects with humanity and warmth. Even in an inform- information landscape dominated today by video and instant dis- digital distribution, the greatest still photographs have a unique power in the split-second uh, moments they capture to distill the essential themes of a news story to freeze the action to invite reflection. 
As we looked at a striking photo of a woman with blonde hair emerging from a smashed apartment block on the outskirts of Kiev in April 2022, just after Russian forces had withdrawn, I asked him how he went about capturing such well-composed images. The woman is clutching blankets, she has retrieved from her home and looks casually at the camera as though performing a normal domestic chore with a vast jumble of pulverised rubble behind her. Did she just spray and pray, hoping to get one good... I said he, right? Did he just spray and pray? Hoping to get one good image out of hundreds, a feasible technique in the age of digital cameras, which can take dozens of photos in a second. Prayer does not enter into it, he says. It's really about years of training, applying what I've learned, being persistent in any given situation. Uh, It's highly unlikely that I'll make a strong, significant image, but the only way I can ever succeed in doing that is to simply throw myself into the situation and just keep shooting and follow my instincts and my intuition and find a place where a picture might happen. Most of the images in Memorial are black and white, but that's not always his preference, he says. Only on in my career, before I established myself, I didn't have much choice. If the editors asked me to do colour, then I did colour. And I always tried to use colour in a way that didn't become the subject of the picture. Colour is a very powerful phenomenon. So powerful that it become the subject, so I tried to keep it under control. In some images, though, the colour really stands out. In early photographs from the El Salvador Civil War shows a military helicopter evacuating an injured soldier. But it's the three little girls crouching behind a tree in the foreground, their dresses of white, pink and pastel blue, standing out in the orange dust cloud. They give the image its haunting loveliness. Most of Mr. Natch Twee's career has been in the era of film. Digital photography, he says, is more time-consuming. In the days of film, I'd shoot my roles of film, and that was it. I'd write my captions, label the roles, and then would have an evening to network and talk with people, get information to figure out what I was going to do the next day. Now I have to download all the memory cards, back everything up, do an initial edit. That makes sense, actually. You don't really think of film as a faster process than digital, but, you know, in the overall sense, it does. In the overall process, it, yeah, definitely makes sense. Uh, we are looking at his photo- photographs from Afghanistan. Uh, incredibly strong, stark images, not re- taken recently, but in 1996, from when Kabul uh, was reduced to a shattered moonscape by the battles between competing warlords. In one, a woman in a light-coloured burqa seems to float like a ghost through the black ruins. In another, a woman on her knees reaches out uh, with a ringed hand to hold the rough ho- rough hoon gravestone of her brother killed by a Taliban rocket. She is surrounded by dozens more of these hastily dug graves. This is the final stage of the Afghan civil war when Kabul was surrounded and besieged by the Taliban, uh, he recalls. They were shelling and rocketing the city every day. The NGOs had left, with the exception of the ICRC. Uh, Virtually all the foreign journalists had left. The editor-in-chief I was working with at the time, he had no interest in the story, but I did. He's arranged uh, this section right next to the dramatic shots he took of 9-11 attacks in New York to make a connection. Uh, We are in a totally interconnected world. The siege of Kabul was one of the last battles of the 20th century. And once the Taliban took over, they set the stage for the wars of the 21st century. Today you can't pretend that that things happen, that things that happen on one side of the world will not affect you. Because in this day and age, they invariably do. 
I put him to a point uh, made by his famous colleague Don McCullen, 12 years his senior. The digital photography is so easily manipulated that it can no longer be trusted. I don't agree with that assessment, Mr. Natch says. The credibility of the person who's making the picture and putting it out is very important. So yes, some people might manipulate falsely digital image, but they could do that with film as well as in the darkroom. Uh, but we live in a sceptical age where so many no longer believe in the partiality of established media, which has given Natch Tweet his greatest exposure. Does that trouble him? I think it's fine to be asked that if we have agendas and biases, I think that's a very good question. And I think we should be ready with a good answer. We should have thought about that and understood it ourselves. I've rarely covered a war where I don't have a very strong opinion about who's the aggressor and who's the victim and where right and wrong plays out. That doesn't mean I'm going to create propaganda for anyone. It doesn't mean I'm going to falsify my images. Is the heroic age of the photojournalist though coming to an end, especially at a time when the people are bombarded daily by a tsunami of digital images and when the first and most and often most dramatic photos of an event are usually taken by citizen journalists with their phones? I suggested that the heyday of photojournalists was probably the pre-digital era of the Sunday colour supplements of newspapers and influential ri- image-rich magazines like Time where millions would see powerful photos from the world's troubled spots for the first and only time. But Mr. Natchtwee remains an optimist about his profession and about humanity, whose darkest sides he has spent his life chronicling. The fact that people are using their phones in a situation where journalists might not be present is, I think, very useful. Journalists can't be everywhere, but the two are not mutually exclusive. We still need trained journalists and photographers who are not just making random shots, who actually trained and have insight, experience and talent. Because that counts for something. It's not only the message, it's the quality of the message which speaks to the people. At the far end of the exhibition is a photograph, printed very large, of a young Vietnamese woman damaged from birth by the effects of chemical herbicide Agent Orange. Her mother holds up her thin arms for exercise in an almost balletic pose. Behind her lies her sister, similarly afflicted, and the rough texture of her simple home. Your eye is drawn to the dazzling filigree lace around the neck of the young woman and the closed eye seraphic expression on her face. It's an achingly beautiful image which just for a moment makes us forget all the suffering that lies behind it. And for the images that are um, described on here, um, do feature um, on this article, so feel free to give it a read for yourselves and have a look at the photos that are described. Um, they are very fascinating and, uh, you know, very uh, very rewarding in in, a, in in the objective sense of uh, what the photo is supposed to be. But, um, yeah, man, it's really, I really appreciate just photojournalism and the quality of it and the time taken. Um, of course, there are, you know, just people on their phones to take pictures and I'm sure there's plenty of and that's the thing, I feel like there is a quality, quantity aspect of this. Um, and, I, and I say that as a digital photographer. Um, you know, there's... You know, I, I went to a... Um, while I was out in London one time, there was a protest going on at Whitehall and I took a few pictures for it. Um, just just, just, just because, to be honest, I wasn't really trying to document anything. Um, I was just taking pictures and just um, uh, taking in the environment. But I feel like... Um, I feel like, you know, there's always, 
events to be covered and uh, not everyone does cover it um, and they cover it in ways that I find perishable like you know Facebook live like who's who's gonna watch that Facebook live after a day you know what I mean after 24 hours nobody's, nobody's watching that so you know I feel like images still images can last a lifetime and last you know several lifetimes as a lot of photos from the 20th century have so far um, so you know I feel like you know still images can last um, I don't think things like an IG post or a uh, or an or an Instagram live or a Facebook live uh, or even a Twitch live, right? You know what I mean? Or just a photo posted on Twitter. Like maybe maybe you'll get memed to death, and that's its way of getting getting past um, you know the 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 the, the barrier of immediacy. Um, but you know, I feel like photojournalism is. Uh, is uh, accounted for properly then you know definitely definitely there's a there's a space for it Okay, let's finish up with a opinion piece about cultural appropriation. So I sent this to a few friends, uh, mainly white, because I wanted to get a white person's perspective on the concept of cultural appropriation. And I got some interesting answers, and um, I was kind of just uh, testing it to see if uh, uh, see if I can get any extra thoughts out of this, because you know it's just, it's, a, it's a it's an argument I don't really care about most of the time. But there is a worthiness inside it. But uh, uh, this is kind of um, give, uh, given. Uh, okay, so the so the opinion piece is by Yasha Munk, uh, who's professor of practice of international affairs at John Hopkins uh, University, and has a book out, uh, latest book uh, coming through. Oh yes, already published. There you go. Uh, the identity trap: a story of ideas and power in our time. Um, so yeah, he pens this piece and. Um, yeah, it's just about cultural appropriation overall, but I don't know. I found it interesting in terms of just the arguments given <laughs> and the and the examples, especially the examples made me laugh. Um, so yeah, let's just, just jump right into this and uh, we'll see where we go. Uh, human beings have, ever since they developed cult- distinct cultures, always worried that their purity might soon be blemished. In ancient Greece, uh, Therpandrus Ther uh, caused offence by adding an extra string to his lyre. Uh, in 16th century China, the emperor ordered all seafaring ships destroyed because of fears about the cultural changes that foreign trade missions might induce. In 19th century Germany, the composer Richard Wagner uh, worried that Jews might spoil the authenticity of German culture. Traditionally, it has been the right uh, that opposed and the left that defended new cultural influences. <laughs> I'll see where this is going, but in recent years... Many progressives have also started to worry about ways in which cultures might cross-pollinate. While they celebrate a great variety of uh, traditional cultures, they now warn about the dangers of cultural appropriation. Most recently, musicians have been shamed for copying the styles of minority groups, and chefs have been boycotted for emulating the cuisines of different nations. As part of its archive repair project, Bon Appetit magazine apologised for allowing a genteel writer to publish a recipe for... Hamantashen, a uh, traditional Jewish dessert. In Britain, uh, newspapers weighed in on whether Jamie Oliver could cook jollof rice. 
and whether it was offensive for Adele to wear traditional African hairstyle to the Notting Hill Carnival in London. At the Reading Festival this summer, organisers prohibited wearing non-Western clothes that might promote cultural appropriation. Okay. Got to put a pin in those. Um, just, to, just these nice examples I want to put a pin. Uh, in many milieus, uh, it is now widely accepted that decent people should avoid committing anything that might in any way be seen as a form of appropriation. One reason for this is that some cases of so-called cultural appropriation do amount to real justices. It was, for example, immoral for white musicians in the US to steal the songs of black eyes who were barred from big careers because of racial discrimination, or for collectors in the UK to loot art from country uh, from the country's former colonies. But does the concept of cultural appropriation actually help to express what is wrong in such cases? No. To see why, it helps to examine more closely some supported cases. Okay. See where this goes. In Waco, Texas, in 2017, for example, members of Bailey University's Kappa Sigma fraternity hosted hosted a Cinco de Drinco party in a malicious parody of Holiday uh, celebrating Mexican-American heritage. A number of students ca- uh, came to the frat house uh, sporting ponchos and sombreros. Some of the girls had dressed up as maids. Two boys dancing on a table were clad in construction workers. Uh, outstanding. Um, what was wrong with this party, as critics argued, is that students who are not Latino appropriated elements of Mexican culture for their own purposes. But this would have a highly implausible implication. Ponchos and sombreros are part of traditional Mexican culture. Made outfits and construction vests are not. So from a from the perspective of cultural appropriation, the students who wore ponchos or sombreros were doing something wrong. But those who wore maids outfits and construction or construction vests were not. Okay. Just gonna continue tentatively here. This is absurd. Okay. While wearing a poncho or a sombrero may be tacky. Wearing a maid's, or constru- a maid's outfit or a construction vest to a Mexican theme party is far more pointed than cruel insult. The intention was clear to imply that Latinos should be cleaners or manual laborers, not college students or professionals. Okay, good. Where are you going with this? Uh, it's, he's, he's, he's on the cusp. He's sitting there just just hovering the cusp of what's going on here. Uh, chill brew, what are, you, what are you saying? Uh, but, you know, let's continue. A similar failure to describe the actual nature of the injustice uh, is at play in virtually all cases in which the media invokes the spectre of cultural appropriation. Rock and roll artists such as Pat Boone uh, have been blamed for singing songs from black musicians who are barred from fame and wealth because of the colour of their skin. It is beyond doubt that these black musicians suffered harm and very much in doubt that the concept of cultural appropriation best describes the nature of that harm. For justice would have been... Uh, be- but justice would have consisted not in stopping Boone from popularizing that music, allowing millions of people to share in his joy, but rather in overcoming the severe discrimination that stopped like African-American performers such as Dill Richard, Big Mama Thornton, and Muddy Waters from enjoying the rightful fruits of their creative efforts. The concept of cultural appropriation is incoherent, making it harder for us to recognize what philosophers call the wrong-making features of genuine injustices. It also creates serious harms of its own by putting healthy forms of cultural exchange under a general pool of suspicion. Pal? P-A-L-L? Pal? Pool? Pool of suspicion? I don't know. 
Of all the greatest dishes, customs and inventions on which humanity can pride itself have roots in many cultures. Trying to assign particular instances of culture to one group in a clean way is a fool's errand. If humans were to be restricted, restricted from drawing on the cultures of all groups in the future, we would, for the same reasons, fundamentally restrict our collective creativity. As the British-born Ghanaian-American uh, philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah has pointed out, trying to find some primordially uh, authentic culture can be like peeling an onion. Cultures are made of continuities and changes, and the identity of a society can survive through these changes. Uh, societies without change aren't authentic, they're just dead. Societies without change aren't authentic, they're just dead. It's a nice quote. Nice line. Uh, Throughout human history, different groups of people have influenced and emulated one another. So it should be a little surprise that some of the most celebrated epochs of human history have come at times and in places that allowed uh, cultures to inspire one another. From the Baghdad of the 9th century to the Vienna of the 19th uh, to London, excuse me, and uh, New York in the 21st, uh, it was cultural hybridity uh, that allowed diverse societies to thrive and shine. Some of the behaviours that supposedly fall under the rubric of appropriation really are just or reprehensible, but the concept fails to explain what makes them wrong, and now runs the danger of making us too far apprehensive about the beautiful and constructive ways in which we can build on each other's cultures. Instead of condemning appropriation, we should seek to build a society in which members of every group are valued equally. And, uh, and all are free to draw inspiration from the cultures of their compatriots. The joy of mutual influence is not a sin against which diverse societies should be on guard. It is the key promise that they, uh, they hold out to us if we get things right. Okay. Um, I feel like it could have been just clearer overall. Um, it was just left a little... Uh, I don't know, man. It was, it was just, it was just weird. You know, what I mean, just the whole thing was worded a bit oddly. Um, I think I agree with what he's on about. Um, but so I don't know. So here's my here's my overall thought on the cultural appropriation and what I and what I gleaned from the answer, uh, why I came out with from the conversations I had with a couple of people. Um, I find cultural appropriation. Um, you know, a a thing that happens, right? You know, f- the textbook definition is uh, of appropriation is right is, you know, they're taking things and switching it up, right? So let me just be specific right here. Let literally look up appropriation noun, the action of appropriating something, uh, or the deliberate reworking of images, styles from earlier well-known works of art. Okay. Boom, that is appropriation. So, cultural appropriation, let's add that into the mix. Cultural, right? So, let's add something like cooking, right? So, you see Jamie Oliver cooking jollof rice, and it's probably, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to go ahead if I, <laughs> and, uh, you know, off the off the back of the, uh, the plethora of Uncle Roger reacts videos to Jamie Oliver cooking, and say that jollof rice was probably shit. Okay, and not proper jollof rice. In some way, he fucked it up, and I'm just going to go ahead and assume that. Right. So, he appropriated jollof rice. No offense. 
No offense there, right? Because he's making a dish, he's changing up, he's putting his own spin on it. Fine. Whatever. It's garbage, but you're free to do what you like. I'm free to take a Italian dish and make it different um, in some way, which is, pro- which is probably not how the Italians do it, right? They might have a tortellini, and I might switch it up somehow. Um, I literally saw a video on pasta shapes and how many there are, and it's actually a very fascinating video. Shout out to Answer in Progress. If you want to give those a spin, type up Answer in Progress on YouTube, and then type up pasta. It'll probably come up there. Um, but yeah, you know, people will switch it up, right? And um, I'm, I've, I've, I've talked about this before when it comes to multiculturalism. I am one, I'm a proponent of uh, of multiculturalism. I feel like I I feel like everybody benefits from multiculturalism, but it requires a education on that front. When you're in a uh, when you're in a multicultural society, you just by osmosis learn um, different things, right? You suddenly know about what it, what a biryani is, right? You suddenly know what curry goat is. You know what reggae is. You know what skia music is. You know what uh, bangra is, right? Just two, those are just two things, obviously one being South Asian and one Caribbean, right? You know where they come from and you hopefully respect that. You respect that they come from different culture um, and while you are, while you, uh, 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 and uh, you know, appropriation is, you know, it's, it's not even in terms of like changing, right? So in terms of like artistry and food, you know, food can be art and that's, you know, that could be a conversation itself. So, in that case, yeah, you know, most of the time it's fine. But obviously, when it gets to, you know, white people stealing rock and roll back in the day, uh, Elvis was a hero to most, right? Uh, motherfucking man, John Wayne, to shout to public enemy. Uh, obviously, though, that cultural appropriation could go fuck itself because that is a, 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 a larger sense of it, a larger embrace of cultural appropriation where there was no attempt to... Um, give respect to the people that actually made the thing. It was cynically done and cynically taken, and they didn't. And the, you know, and the and the benefiters didn't give a fuck. They couldn't give two shits, right? That's wrong. But for have to have Jamie Oliver cook a jollof rice, which is most likely shit. To have Adele, you know, uh, rock knots during uh, uh, Notting Hill Carnival. Fine. It's funny. It's kind of hilarious, right? Uh, it's it's kind of cute. Oh, look at you. But people obviously know that Jamie Oliver's jollof rice is not jollo- is not the be all and end all of what jollof rice is. Okay, and I feel like you know if it doesn't get to the point of Jamie Oliver's jollof is how people see jollof, then that's obviously wrong, and that requires the educational side of this. Um, that's all, that's all this is. It just requires education. Um, Hip hop is not just made by um, African Americans. It was also um, Latin, Latin American uh, people had a hand in hip hop, and they don't get the credit, and that's some form of you know shunning, um, and white people had nothing to do with hip hop, and here is you know people appropriating. Sometimes they do it faithfully. I would say Eminem did it faithfully, um, but you know there's plenty of white artists that I don't believe do it faithfully. Um, and I don't listen to them. <laughs> I don't listen to them either. But you know, it is what it is. Um, I can respect him objectively um, for having for putting in you know the effort and putting in the knowledge and knowing what is what and what is you know what he can and can't do. 
Um, and he, you know, he know, I feel, I feel like he knows. I, I think this has been documented. That he knows that he benefited from the culture. Um, and that just, you know, applies to things like whiteness and, you know, things that we don't have time to talk about. But when it comes to cultural appropriation, I feel like there's levels to it. Um, Jamie Oliver doing jollof and Adele wearing knots um, is, you know, green level cultural appropriation. It's still appropriation. Don't get it twisted. It's appropriation. But it's harmless. Um, but, you know, stealing rock and roll, that's a level of cultural appropriation that is, you know, demonic, right? <laughs> and just, and should be rectified, um, but uh, probably won't for a while because people either have stopped caring about um, rock and roll or just don't care about black artists and is what it is. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, you know, I made it a little bit simpler. I still don't actually know where Bossman's coming from at that point um, in his overall his overall point towards it. Um, but I feel like I agree with the majority of what he was saying, um, although he just said it a bit um, a bit too poetically or a bit too academically for, for my liking. I don't know how you want to fr- phrase his wording. But anyway, uh, let me know what you feel about cultural appropriation. I find it interesting. Like, um, you know, I would like, I like making food from you know, I like making pasta. I'm not Italian, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't know if Italians feel some type of way about um, pizza and pasta being such um, important uh, imports. I don't know how they care about that kind of cultural appropriation because if they find offence to that, I get it. I'd get it because <laughs> our, our pizza ain't authentic. Goodfellas, ain't, Goodfellas is not authentic, okay? But it is what it is. Uh, but anyway, I find that interesting. So anyway... Ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Tony. It's been what's good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for being used to track. You can find both links in the full show notes. And thanks to Happy Hire, who recently got uh, signed to Lorange's Old Soul Records or Old Soul Music um, and is going to be re releasing his album Menace um, via DSPs. And he already dropped one of the singles with Raekwon and Westside Gun. Go give that a spin. And uh, yeah, thanks to Charismatic Interlude. And you can find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.